You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, well, we are here on Pentecost weekend. Tomorrow is Pentecost Sunday. So that's what I'm going to preach on uh, this evening. I'm going to preach on this subject of Pentecost. The title of my sermon this weekend is Undoing Babel. And you'll see where that comes in very shortly. Uh, let's look at our text today. We're going to go to Acts chapter 2, of course. Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41. Peter says this, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time. Underline that phrase. Continued (laughs) preaching for a long time. I'm not going to preach a long time. Uh, Where do we leave off here? Strongly urging all his listeners. We must have lost our text. Um, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. So we're talking about um, this subject of Pentecost uh, this weekend. It marks this event that takes place about 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. And it happens to be during the annual Feast of Pentecost for the Jewish people. And uh, during the Feast of Pentecost, Jerusalem would swell up to over 2 million people from all over the world. Jews have gathered in Jerusalem and they're, they're packing all of these local towns. And, and it's a big, big event, as you can imagine. You know, a city of, I don't, I don't even know, maybe 20,000, 30,000 people typically swells up to over 2 million. Um, And they're gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost, and uh, the 120 believers, and there are only 120 of them at this point. This is 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. Not a lot of what we would call Christians yet in the world. And they're all gathered in one place because Jesus has told them before He ascended to heaven, He said, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait because there's a gift that you're going to receive. The Father has promised you a gift, the Holy Spirit, and you're going to receive this gift. So go to Jerusalem. I don't want you to plant any churches. I don't want you to preach any sermons yet. I don't want you to disciple anybody. Go to Jerusalem and wait, because there's something essential that you need. And so they go to Jerusalem, and all of these 120 believers, they gather in one place together. And finally, on the actual day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out on these 120 people. And there's a lot of things that happen, but among the many things that happen is supernaturally these 120 people who were all from Galilee, they are instantly 
beginning to speak in other human languages from around the world. They've never learned these languages, but, um, but they instantly are speaking these languages from around the world, and it spills out onto the streets of Jerusalem. And all these Jewish people, hundreds and thousands of Jewish people, it causes a stir in the streets because they all begin to recognize the gospel announcement that Jesus is the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Messiah. He's the king right now, ruling and reigning over the heavens and the earth. And they begin to hear this announcement in their own language. And into this moment, Simon Peter, who just days earlier denied even knowing Jesus to a little girl at a campfire, all of a sudden, in front of the entire city of Jerusalem, stands up on the southern temple steps in front of hundreds of thousands of people. And he begins to boldly proclaim the gospel that this Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified outside the city wall just a few days ago, he has risen from the grave. We are all witnesses of this. And he has ascended to the Father's right hand. He is our reigning Messiah. He's our King. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And just like that, 3,000 people come into the kingdom and are baptized. It's what we call Pentecost as Christians. It's this incredible event, really the birth of the Christian church. But so often when the message of Pentecost is reflected upon and thought about and preached on and taught on, so often we take the meaning of Pentecost and we shrink it down and we only think of it in terms of individual spiritual experience. Now, I believe in having individual spiritual experiences with God. I believe that. And I've had many of them myself. And I hope to have many, many more. But that's not really what Pentecost is about. Pentecost is not about individualism. Quite the contrary. It's about our unity in the Spirit. It's about God saving the world from itself through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, in order to, for you to um, learn something about the meaning of Pentecost, and I can't give you everything that I could give you tonight. It's such a big topic. But in order to learn a little bit about the meaning of Pentecost, what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to take you all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, first book of the Bible, and I'm going to walk you through the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. So we're going to look at the Tower of Babel, and that's where we're going to start today. Now let me just say this as we get started. When it comes to a lot of these stories in the Old Testament, what we have to understand is that this is all part of Holy Scripture, and it's there for us to learn something from. This is something we are to be taught by. There's, some, there's a reason why this story is included in Holy Scripture. There's, there's a lesson, there are insights that we need to gain from it. And a lot of times what happens is we modern people bring our modern questions and sensibilities to these ancient texts. And we want to know how literal should I take this or how historical should I understand this? And I think when we get preoccupied with those kinds of questions, we miss the whole point of why it's here. And we really miss what these ancient people are trying to tell us. They're not interested in answering our questions. What they're interested in is recording and compiling these traditions because there's something that we need to learn from them. So with that in mind, let's look at the story of the Tower of Babel, and I want to point out some things, and just stay with me. I'm going to be building a foundation, 
And then once we get to the end of the message, I'm going to be able to kind of coast and riff a little bit. I got something really on my heart that I want to share with you, but I got to do some work before we get there. So let's look at uh, Genesis 11. Uh, We're going to kind of go through it verse by verse. I'll make a few comments in between. Genesis 11, verse 1, here's how the story of the Tower of Babel begins. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. Now, before we go on to the next verse, it's very important that you get that what this story is telling us is there's a time when the whole world is the same, universal sameness. That's what the Bible wants you to understand about this story. Everything's the same, same words, same language. Verse 2, as the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. Now, two things about this verse. First of all, notice what direction they've migrated to. They've migrated to the east. This is a pattern in the early part of Genesis. In the early part of Genesis, every time people are on the move, they're always heading eastward. For example, Adam and Eve, when they rebel against God and are banished from the Garden of Eden, where do they go? East of Eden. When Cain kills his brother Abel, After God confronts him, Cain migrates eastward where he founds the first human city. And then here again in chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel, the whole world migrates eastward. They're always moving east, east, east. And this is a symbol that I want you to see. Every time in the book of Genesis people are moving eastward, it means they're moving away from God. They're moving away from God's vision for humankind. You could just say it like this. They're moving in the wrong direction. And that keeps happening until we get to Abraham in Genesis 12. And God says, leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's household, and go to a land that I will show you. And Abraham becomes the first person in the book of Genesis to begin moving west in the right direction. That's very significant. So they're migrate, the, the whole world is gathered together. They're migrating eastward, and they find themselves in the land of Babylonia. Now, this is the first introduction of this massively huge, important concept in the Bible called Babylon. Everybody say Babylon. Babylon is, first of all, it is a real place in the Bible, but Babylon also in the Bible becomes a symbol for human empire. In other words, it becomes a symbol of this, um, well, let's just use the word, let's stick with the word empire. But what is empire? Empire is the domination of human beings in opposition towards God. And that's what Babylon comes to represent in the Bible. And it's all throughout the Bible. We see it here in Genesis, through the Law and the Prophets, in the New Testament. And it it figures very prominently in the final book of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation, which, by the way, we're going to look at next week. I'm going to give you a bird's eye view of the book of Revelation next week. So if you want to hear some of my take on the book of Revelation, come next week. And then I take four weeks off of preaching and I get out of here because you guys are all going to be mad at me. Uh, No. Not true, not true. Um, but, but we see Babylon as this symbol of human beings being dominated in opposition to God. That's what empire is in the Bible. It's all throughout the Bible. Opposition to God, bent on dominating other people, and God is opposed to this. God is opposed to this. And this is our first introduction. This, this is where we meet Babylon for the first time right here in this verse. Now let's look at verse 3. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. 
In this region, bricks were used instead of stone and tar was used for mortar. Pause there. I want you to know that bricks are not looked upon favorably in the Bible. Every time in the Bible people are making bricks, they're up to no good. In the Bible. All right? If you're a bricklayer in this room, you can relax. I'm not talking about you. But just think about it. What, where's the very next place in the Bible we see people making bricks? In Egypt. When the Hebrew people are enslaved to Egyptian empire. And they are the slave labor force mass-producing bricks. So you can think of bricks here as, as a form of mass production, which we, we tend to see as a very positive thing in, in America, and, it, and in one sense it can be. But if we're not careful, mass production can cause us to not only think of things as bricks, but can cause us to think of people as bricks. And we can very quickly, with a, with a um, factory kind of assembly line mindset, even within churches, where we just put people through this factory assembly line. Here's how you're, you got to take these four classes, boom, you're discipled. And we just stamp them out like, like God's a mass industrialist or something. And what happens with that mentality is we turn people into things. We turn people into numbers. We, we turn people's worth and value into how much they can produce. So people become objectified. We turn them into bricks. All in all, you're just another brick in the wall. How about Pink Floyd on Pentecost weekend? <laughs> so they're, invent they're inventing brick technology, and that's all part and parcel with empire. Look at verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. Think of the Tower of Mordor reaching way up into the sky, kind of like the one in our title slide. They say, this will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. Now, here's what you got to get right here, okay? And, and just stick with me. I, I promise you I'm going somewhere, but I want you to get, this is kind of key right here. What we have here so far in the Babel story, this is the project of totalism. Empire is all about totalism. It wants to completely control everything. So in other words, the empire wants to control how people think, how they talk, how they act, what they dream, what they imagine. Empire wants to totally control everything. And the problem with totalism it's it, is it puts us on a trajectory towards totalitarianism, which is a word that was invented to describe what the Nazis were up to. You know, the Nazis wanted to totally control their entire society so that there's no diversity. No differing perspectives, no differing opinions. Everything's the same. Uh, people think the same way. People talk the same way. They wanted to make it where people do the same thing and imagine the same and dream the same. Everybody's in lockstep, uniform agreement, no deviation whatsoever. And that's what this whole Babel thing represents. Verse 5 and 6. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Now, you might think of that as a good thing. Hey, the people are united. But the question is, how are they united and for what purpose? If they're just united 
in totalism where we got to make it to where everybody's exactly the same and thinks the same and behaves the same way. That's not unity. That's uniformity. And God is not a God of uniformity. God is a God of beautiful, rich diversity. When's the last time you've looked at his creation? It's filled with beautiful, wonderful, fascinating diversity. And God says these people are bent on making everything the same and uniform. This is not good. And what we've got to do is we've got to be reunited in love where we appreciate the diversity of others. And we don't feel like we've got to make everybody exactly the same. So God is intervening here. Look at verse 7. God says in verse 7, Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. So after all of this same, 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 finally we've got something different. And where does it come from? Where Where does this different come from? It comes from God. God introduces difference into the world of human sameness. He says, come, let us go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. So God is making diversity necessary. He says in that, excuse me, the writer says, in that way the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped building the city. That is why this city was called Babel because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. So once again, sum it all up, the project of Babylon is to make everything the same. God intervenes and creates difference and diversity. Everybody with me so far? All right, we're going somewhere. Turn to your neighbor and say, we're going somewhere. All right. Now, with the Tower of Babel story fresh in our minds, let's zoom forward all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, 2,000 years ago. Let's pick it up in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Verse by verse. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Now, wait a minute. That ought to, that ought to ring a bell. Because we just came from Genesis 11. And we've moved to Acts chapter 2. And here in Acts chapter 2, it says all the believers were gathered in one place. And once again, when it says all the believers, it means all the believers in the world. You could fit them in these first few rows. They're all gathered together in one place. Just like in Genesis 11, it says the whole world was gathered in one place. Now we have all the believers gathered in one place. Pick it up in verse 2. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each one of them. I wish I could go into all of the symbolism here and then what this what what's happening here but we'll save it for a future pentecost message verse four and everyone present was filled with the holy spirit and began speaking in other languages as the holy spirit gave them this ability so this is just like what happened in genesis 11 with the tower of babel With the Tower of Babel, the whole world was gathered in one place. God does something, and all of a sudden they're scattered speaking all of these different languages. Well, here in Acts chapter 2, all the believers are gathered in one place. God does something, and now they're all speaking all of these different human languages. So it's just like the story of Babel with one key difference. Let's pick it up, verse 5. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. Now, when it says every nation, there is a little bit of hyperbole there. 
Like, I'm sure there weren't folks from Venezuela on the scene, right? Um, but it's very important that this, this language is used of every nation because it harkens back to what Jesus had told the disciples much, much earlier when he told them that the end will not come, by which I believe he means the end of the temple, the end of the temple age will not come until this gospel of the kingdom has been proclaimed in every nation of the world. And now we have Luke once again taking that same language, that global language, and he says at that time there were devout Jews from every nation, all gathered together, living in Jerusalem, Feast of Pentecost, and look what happens, verse 6. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. So wait a minute. This is different from what happened with Babel. Because in the Babel story, the whole world's gathered in one place. God does something. They speak in all of these different languages. But what results is confusion because they can't understand one another. But here in Acts 2, the believers are gathered. God does something. They speak in all of these human languages from around the world. And everybody understands. They understand the good news. They understand the gospel because it's coming to them in their own native tongue. Verse 7, they were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. You see, Christianity from the beginning was always intended to be a translated faith. For example, all of these people here, they're from Galilee. All they speak is Aramaic. They might know a little bit of Greek. They might know a little bit of Hebrew, but what they really speak is Aramaic. And then all of a sudden, now they're speaking in all of these different languages, and they're being understood. And what are they talking about? They're talking about what God has done in Jesus Christ to save the world. Christianity was always intended to be a translated faith. Think of it like this. When Jesus originally preached the Sermon on the Mount in Galilee. He preached it in the language of Aramaic. But by the time you and I as 21st century English-speaking Americans, by the time we receive the Sermon on the Mount, it's been translated into English from Greek, which was translated from the original Aramaic, which we don't even have anymore. We don't even have the, the original wording, the Aramaic version, Jesus' actual word for word. We don't have that. It doesn't exist anymore. By the time you and I receive it, we are two languages removed from the original language of the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost as if God was saying, listen, I'm not going to give it to you in Jesus' original words because that doesn't matter. Keep translating it. That's what matters. Keep translating it. Keep translating it so that every person on this planet can hear the gospel announcement that Jesus is our crucified, risen, ascended, Lord of all, ruling and reigning from the right hand of God right now. And they can hear that good news in their own context and understand it in their own culture. Keep translating it. Now, the church lost sight of this for about a thousand years. For about a thousand years, the church said, no, nah, we're just going to keep it all in Latin. So if you want to know the prayers, if you want to know the stories, if you want to know the scriptures, if you want to hear the gospel, you're going to have to learn Latin. See, that's the project of totalism. That's the pattern of Babel. We're going to keep everything in this bland sameness. And that went on for about a thousand years, and they should have known better. Look at what the crowd says here in verse 9. They say, here we are, Parthians, 
Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, basically the whole known world. And we all hear these people speaking in our languages about the wonderful things God has done. So the Spirit of God gives us power to cross cultural boundaries and communicate the gospel in a way that people can understand in their own context. Amen. Verse 12. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them saying, they're just drunk, that's all. That's an inadequate theological explanation for what just happened. Verse 14, then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. I like what he says here. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. Now, Joel is a guy who hundreds of years earlier lived and prophesied, and Peter's about to quote from one of Joel's writings that had been preserved for several hundred years in his day. And he begins quoting Joel right here in verse 17. He says, in the last days. Now, pause there for just a moment. Now, you're going to see the whole point Peter's about to make is that what Joel prophesied about and wrote about all those hundreds of years ago, Peter's telling these people, it's happening right now. Like what you're seeing and what you're hearing here in Jerusalem, this is what Joel was talking about hundreds of years ago. And look how it begins, in the last days. So in other words, the last days began on the day of Pentecost. Because it means that the gospel culminates in the creation of Christ's church. So people ask me all the time, Ryan, do you think we're living in the last days? Are we living in the last days? I can tell you conclusively we're living in the last days because we've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. Now, what people really want to know is, are we living in the last of the last days? And I never speculate on that because people have been speculating and getting it wrong for 2,000 years. But if you want to know from a New Testament perspective, are we living in the, new, in the last days? The answer is undoubtedly yes. And he goes on, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. That's a radical idea right there. Because the prevailing mentality of the day is God is the Jewish God, and God will pour out his Jewish spirit on his Jewish people. And what Joel's saying hundreds of years earlier is, well, there's coming a time God's going to pour out his spirit on all kinds of different people. And Peter's saying it's happening right now, and it's going to increase exponentially from here. And then he finishes quoting he says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. And your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red. All of this happened on the day Jesus was crucified. Before that great and glorious day, the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, here's where I want to close. 
I just got one closing thought for you on Pentecost weekend. My family and I, we moved here to California roughly almost two years ago. We're from South Louisiana. And people ask us all the time, uh, do you miss anything? What, what do you miss? What do you miss about South Louisiana? We, we miss our family and friends, of course. We miss gas prices. <laughs> and um, we really miss our, our cuisine. Our, our, how do you say it? Cuisine? Cuisine. I'll go with cuisine. Correct me later. We really miss good Cajun food. Because every city in the United States thinks they have a good Cajun restaurant. And I'm just going to tell you through experience, and I don't say this arrogantly, it's just a matter of fact. The only place to get real good, authentic Cajun food is South Louisiana. Not North Louisiana, South Louisiana. I remember... Um, in college, when I was in college in Florida, you know, there were some folks telling me, Ryan, you gotta, there's this Cajun restaurant downtown. You got to go this Cajun restaurant. And I was like, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. And they were like, yeah, but, you know, the owner's from New Orleans, which is what everybody says about their, quote, unquote, Cajun restaurant in their city. Well, the owner's from New Orleans. So I went. I went to this uh, restaurant, and they served me gumbo on a plate, and it had tomatoes in it. And it's just one of the worst sins I've ever witnessed in my life. So, I'm just going to tell you, I mean, you want good, authentic Cajun food, you've got to get it from South Louisiana, because that's where you get all the ingredients. You can't even find the ingredients out here. i gotta, I got to ship them on an airplane with an ice chest just so we can have gumbo during the year. So, we miss some of that. But it's not just true about Cajun food. There's a lot of cities around the United States that have their own distinct cuisine that cannot be duplicated. Like, Carrie and I, before we moved here, we thought that we've had good, authentic Mexican food. And then we moved to South California, Southern California, and we realized we've never had good, authentic Mexican food in our lives. Because we, we got a small group that met this spring. We had like a Santa Clarita-based small group. Some of our families and village, we live up there. And so we got a little small group together this spring. And we met together for a few weeks, um, just kind of a short-term thing. We'll do it throughout the year. So if you're from Santa Clarita, you can join. Just let me know. Or even if you're not from Santa Clarita and you want to make the drive, you can. But in our small group this spring, we had two families who are Hispanic families. And three of the four spouses are from Mexico. The other one's from El Salvador. And so the idea was, you know, we would move it around from week to week. And if whoever was hosting that week, they would provide the meal. And so these Hispanic families provided the meal several times for our small group. And they, they just presented this amazing, authentic Mexican meal that you won't find on a menu anywhere around here. But I, we, Carrie and I were driving home, and I was telling her, like, whenever we have small group at our house, we are not serving tacos. <laughs> we're just not going to go there. It'd be embarrassing. But that's the way it is. There are just certain parts of the United States that have a distinct cuisine that cannot be duplicated. It's that way around the world. Over the last several years, I've had the privilege of being able to go on a few international trips and experience different cultures around the world, and, and everybody's got their own kind of flavor. You know, those of you that went to Israel with us, for example, you know, we had some of the best Mediterranean cuisine you can find on the planet. And, you know, I mean, you can go, 
you can go around here and find some Mediterranean, like if you could probably find Mediterranean cuisine in Des Moines, Iowa, but it's not going to be anything like what you'll find actually in a, in a Mediterranean city. And, and every place has their own, and I'm going somewhere with this. I'm not just here making you hungry. I'm, I promise you we're going somewhere. But one of, like, whenever I've been able to travel outside the United States and I go to one of these beautiful international cities, there's always a twinge of sadness when I'm walking around and I see a McDonald's on the street corner. Now, I've got nothing against McDonald's. Every, every once in a while, McDonald's hits the spot. And it's a very, very unique American invention. But I don't particularly enjoy being in other parts of the world and seeing McDonald's everywhere I go. Like if, I'm, if I happen to be in Paris, France, I don't want to eat McDonald's. I want to eat some good, authentic Parisian cuisine. Give me at least some crepes or something like that. Same thing with Starbucks. I don't have anything against Starbucks. I love Starbucks. I'll, I'll, I'll drink some Starbucks. But if, if I were in Rome or Naples, Italy, Starbucks is the last place I want to go get coffee. You understand? <laughs> Italy's got some of the best coffee in the world with these beautiful, quaint little coffee shops that have been around forever. See, every part of the world has their own distinct cultural elements that cannot be duplicated the world's such a beautifully rich diverse place and it makes the world a better place and i'm not just talking to you about food i'm talking to you about the body of christ this evening the unity of the church is not about all of us speaking one language and being exactly the same that's babylon Unity is about one gospel being spoken in many tongues with many different expressions. You know, Jesus prayed on the, on the night of his last supper. He prayed that his followers, that we would all be one. But what does it mean for us to all be one? It doesn't mean that the worldwide church must become one single unified denomination. Man, these beautiful, rich traditions and streams that have developed over 2,000 years in our great Christian faith are much too precious to be subjugated to one single bland sameness. In other words, unity, of the ch unity in the church is not achieved by everyone becoming Catholic or everyone becoming Orthodox, or everyone becoming Protestant, or everyone becoming Anglican, or everyone becoming Evangelical, or everyone becoming Pentecostal Charismatic. That's not how unity is achieved, where we end up thinking we've got to make everybody exactly the same, and we all got to be uniform and have the exact same perspectives and opinions on every single conceivable doctrine. I'm just going to tell you bluntly, we don't. We don't. Christ and creed are enough for our unity. Christ and creed are enough for our unity. And so what we do is we just simply recognize the legitimacy of the rich variety of Christian traditions of the global historic church, and we simply confess that we are one, not the same. Not Babylon with this bland sameness and everybody's got to be the same, but we are one. And if we say it and we mean it, it's true. For example, I'm not going to become Catholic 
I'm not a Catholic. I would be a lousy Catholic. But I can be one with Catholics. You bet I can. Now, are there aspects of their doctrine I disagree with? Of course. But there's aspects of your doctrine I disagree with. And there's probably aspects of my doctrine that you disagree with. But being one is not about being the same. Being one is about understanding that there are legitimate expressions of our rich faith tradition called Christianity. And we don't have to make everything Starbucks and McDonald's. We can have difference and still be one. And that's what God likes. Oh God, you've made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed son to preach peace. Shalom to those who are far and to those who are near. So grant that peoples everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of your kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Stand with me this evening. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.